Hello and welcome to The Lydia Project, Conversations with Christian Women. My name is Tori Walker and this is episode 26. Today's episode was originally recorded for the Gospel in Society Today team, otherwise known as GIST. They're a group within the Presbyterian Church of Queensland who produce resources to help Queenslanders to live for Jesus and proclaim the hope we have in him. It's a great website and there's some really thoughtful articles on there. Look, if you're not a Queenslander or a Presbyterian, shame, as my South African friends would say, but you can still access the site and have a look around to see if there's anything there that might be helpful for you. So anyway, this conversation was recorded to communicate the careful work that the committee has been doing on the issue of abortion. However, it's such an important topic and it was such an interesting and helpful conversation that I really wanted to share it here with you, lovely listeners. So the conversation was with Robin Bain, who I really respect. She always applies her careful and precise way of thinking to so much of what she does. Uh, There's so much information in this episode that you may find yourself hitting the rewind button and listening again at a couple of points. As always, the links and books mentioned in the episode will all be on the Gospel Coalition Australia website where this podcast is hosted. We'll also pop them on the Facebook page. On to the conversation. My guest in conversation today is Robin Bain. Robin has studied both medicine and theology and so is in quite a unique position in being able to combine thinking about these two. So Robin, tell me a little bit about GIST. GIST is an acronym for the Gospel in Society Today team. I guess you'd call it the Social Issues Committee of Presbyterian Church of Queensland. Our big aim in GIST is to equip believers in Queensland to faithfully live for Jesus in an increasingly secular society and to be able to point people to the great hope we have in Jesus through talking about social issues. So we're only a small committee, um, but we've been gradually building up a body of work, I guess you can say, over the last few years on lots of different issues, sexuality, abortion. We've got some, putting some material together at the moment about um, religious freedom and euthanasia. So yeah, it's a great committee. I really enjoy it. So how did you, as a committee, decide to look at this issue of abortion? First of all, it's an issue that's very much coming into the news at the moment in Queensland. The legalisation of abortion has been on the agenda for the Queensland Government for some time and we know that the Law Reform Commission is looking into it at the moment. They'll put out a report very soon. So we know it's about to hit the news. So therefore, I guess we want to encourage believers to be talking about abortion in a way that's shaped by the gospel. I'll talk a little bit more about it in a moment, but a lot of believers are quite passionate about the issue. But for a lot of other believers, it's something that's, it's an issue that's at a distance. Uh, It's serious, but not something we really talk about or think about. So, um, yeah, I I guess it's very much in the news, but also it's an issue that... um, is, is very quietly there for a lot of people all the time. So, yeah, it's a big issue for people. I want to encourage people to think about it in the gospel. So, Robin, what started you personally thinking about this issue? Well, I've worked for many years as a doctor and I've also worked for many years in Christian ministry. or done a lot of Christian ministry and that's what I do with my time now. 
besides looking after my two beautiful children and um, keeping my household in some kind of order. But um, yeah, I found because of that background that people would often ask me about, well, the, what is the biblical thinking on hot button issues like abortion and sexuality and euthanasia and infertility? And I started to think, well, oh, gee, I better think about this because there's a lot of potential for me here for me to say a whole lot of really unhelpful things or really ignorant things. And people might believe me. So I started to do some study and some um, research in bioethics. Just tell me what bioethics Bioethics, is. yes, it is a techie word, isn't it? Bioethics is basically asking the question, how do we make good decisions about human life? and about the body. There's been so much progress in biotechnology over the last 40 or 50 years. So there are so many things that we can do. But I guess bioethics is asking, what should we do? And I got involved with the GIST committee. My husband, Andrew, teaches ethics at the Queensland Theological College. So I started helping him with a bit of bioethics teaching. And the lovely thing is that I found that as as I've been doing this, people have started to share their stories with me and I've had the opportunity to walk beside people as they've endured their own struggles. And then as well, I found God's word very much speaking to me in profoundly personal ways as I've looked into these issues, speaking to me about the everyday stuff of my life and my struggles. So I found myself asking, along with my friends, how do I cope with the feeling that my life's gone wrong? And where is God in the midst of suffering and the midst of awfulness? And, and what does real non-surface love look like amidst really bad stuff? And, and what difference does Jesus make to the way I think about myself and, and how life should work? and what I love and what I want. I also started to see more and more the way that our culture and our community shapes our thinking and shapes the way we feel about our lives, particularly about our pain and how subtly destructive and deceitful that cultural influence is. And I've also seen how much we need to bring our pain, every bit of our pain, every bit of our lives to the feet of Jesus and let him talk to us and let him rebuild us from, from the inside out. And abortion is a great example of that process, I think, of, of bringing big, hard, awful questions to God's word and finding ourselves comforted and challenged afresh by a God who cares, who cares for people like us, who make sinful choices and have caused terrible damage to our, to our own lives and to the lives of people around us, but a God who forgives our sins, who forgives the sin of abortion um, and who changes us and gives us hope in the death and resurrection of Jesus. All sorts of people have abortions, don't they? And Often their reasons are different. So why do women and girls have abortions? There are all sorts of different reasons why women have abortions. If you think about the kinds of women who might present for an abortion, you could have a, a, a young woman who's halfway through her uni degree, who's dependent on her parents and who's, who's gotten pregnant after a fling. You might have a married woman who already has four kids and she's suddenly pregnant with number five and her husband's unemployed. You could have a, 
a woman who desperately fears the shame of falling pregnant outside of marriage, and that shame from her family, from her culture, from her church. You can, you can have a woman who's found out that her baby has severe abnormalities or is unlikely to survive out of, outside the womb and her doctor has suggested termination. All sorts of women in all sorts of situations and for all sorts of reasons. For many of these women, though, I think we can say that an unplanned or complicated pregnancy means for them reorientating to a whole new future that, that is very different to the one that they've planned and and very different to the one that they want, often devoid of things they've really hoped for, devoid of opportunities or relationships or, or freedom or even just youth. So an unplanned or a complicated pregnancy can often feel like a death of self for women in this situation. Um, I'm, I'm going to talk more about the reality of those situations in a few minutes, but you know, I, I think it's important to imagine ourselves in that place and what it feels like to be in that place. And the message of, that those women hear loud and clear in our community when they're battling with those feelings is that when life is spun out of control, abortion is a good solution. So why does abortion seem like a good idea? If you, if you listen to people talk about abortion and hear some of the key words, we hear, we hear rights and choice, we hear freedom and control, and those, I think they're immensely potent words because I think we naturally feel that, that we want to have full lives and enjoy life. We don't want life to be a daily struggle. We want to be able to flourish. We, we want to be able to do what we want to do and choose what's best for us. And an abortion seems to be a way of hanging on to that control that seems so essential to us. I think for many women, abortion does feel like a sad decision, but, it, but it's an essential life-saving decision. It's the alternative of keeping the baby is worse. So it's really a case of life of mum versus life of fetus. I think that's how it often feels. The two are directly opposed, which raises the question as to how do we, how does our community, as we talk about abortion, how do we decide between those two lives? And I think abortion makes sense to people. The way we make it, the way our community makes it um, sound reasonable is if we see the fetus as a human being, and I think most people do see the fetus as a human being now, not just as a piece of tissue. If we see the fetus as a human being, but not yet a person, not yet a person who is worthy of as much protection as the woman. And I think that is a key idea, a key way, um, a key idea in abortion talk, that the fetus is a human being, but not yet a person, a person who's worthy of as much protection as an adult, which throws up the question, um, how can you tell when this, this very young human being actually becomes a person who's worthy of protection? For many centuries, we've had this idea in the West that you, you can identify a person by looking at them and, and spotting certain characteristics. So for most embryologists and most Christians, um, a, a fetus becomes a... Well, this little cell, these little bunch of cells become human right at the point of fertilization when the sperm joins with the egg. There's all the material there ready for, a, for that um, 
that little being to grow up into a mature adult. For many gynaecologists, the, uh, those cells become a person when the embryo implants in the uterine wall. In a lot of research situations, the embryo is said to become a person at, say, for about 14 days. According to the law, a fetus uh, becomes a fully recognised individual person once they're born. For some philosophers, so there's a, a controversial philosopher uh, you've, you've probably heard of called Peter Singer. And he says that you can identify a person when you spot certain characteristics like self-consciousness or the ability to make choices and express preferences. So he, very controversially, would say that you could have an infant or a person in a coma who's not actually a person. And But if we come back from that more extreme edge, I think we find we have a, a different sense of bonding with the fetus at different stages. It's easier to feel a sense of care and connection with a baby who's about to be born, who you can you know, see on an ultrasound, compared to, say, a tiny little embryo that we can only see under a microscope. So I think we intuitively use our sight to identify who is like me. The more like me someone is, the more likely we are to value or to protect him or her. And I think our feelings about life, our mood, our health, our financial situation, all those things can change our feelings about a baby too. So I think what we've got to notice there is that personhood and, and the value of a fetus is very much shaped by the needs and the feelings and the circumstances and the judgment of adults. Um, so what we see in abortion talk is that an unplanned or complicated pregnancy can really sink a woman's sense of control and freedom, which is, feels so important to her sense of self. And if we say that the fetus is not yet a person who deserves as much protection as a woman, then abortion seems to be a good solution. It really strikes me, though, that that's, that's a bold judgment to make, isn't it? It's a bold judgment to say that this human being is not yet a person who is, is of, whose life is, is of much value as mine. Mm. And so what does the Bible have to say about that, about humanity and personhood and beginning of life? Yeah, the Bible has, has lots of wonderful things to say about personhood and the value of human life. And, and the value, I think it's important to point out, the value of an embryo or a fetus, I'm, I'm using the two terms interchangeably, um, but also about the, the value and the personhood um, of the adults involved with that fetus, the, the mother and the father and the grandparents and the, and the Christian brothers and sisters and the health professionals involved. The Bible doesn't make a series of clinical statements about when the personhood of a fetus starts or ends, but what the Bible does, I think more wonderfully, is that it tells us a story that, that addresses our hearts. So the beginning of the story, you've got Genesis 1 and 2, and, and we meet there a lavishly generous God who very purposefully speaks and breathes people into life. So right from the beginning, we see that we've been designed to hear God's life-generating voice and to respond with, with life-embracing obedience right from the beginning. That's, that's what our purpose is. Um, no, notice that right from the beginning, we see that God hasn't made us 
to be like mini gods, to be in control of our lives, um, to be who we want to be. But right from the beginning, we've been made to depend on him for everything good. And also he's made us to nurture and care for God-made people and, and things in a way that reflects the way he cares. So I think it's important to notice right from the beginning, we're not many gods who are in control and deciding what we want to do. From the beginning, we see that every person has the dignity of being God-made and God-purposed. And sin never takes that dignity away. So even after the fall, we see the Bible says that people are just as much made in the image of God as ever. They're just as precious as ever. So even after the fall, when a whole lot of horrendous things have happened, we get to Genesis 9, verses 5 and 6, where God says, Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. So even though sin has invaded everything, still all people without exception are precious because they're God-made and purposed. And that theme starts in Genesis, but it reaches this magnificent peak when Jesus arrives, when Jesus, who is God, becomes a man, becomes a human being, and takes on every stage of development from embryo to adult, and permanently joins God to human beings in his own person, and then dies and rises in order to, to gather humanity together in him as rulers over God's creation in the heavenly age, well, I don't think you can take human dignity much more seriously than that. I think that's just magnificent. So so we see from the beginning, we're not many gods. We've got God-given dignity. I think we've got to notice too that there's no hint in the Bible whatsoever that human beings vary in value or worth. There's no hint that a human being at some point in their life trajectory may not be a person who's worthy of protection less worthy of protection than another. So Psalm 139 is, is, is so often quoted when we talk about abortion, but it is, it's, it's beautiful. I think it's worth reading a, a couple of verses, verses 13 to 16. Um, for you formed my inward parts, for you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. And in your book were written, every one of them, the days that are formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. So before we were seen and known by any human being, we were seen and known by God. So it's his sight it's his judgment about human value that counts. It's not ours. And every human being is God's seen. Every human being is a person who's equally precious at every stage of life, from embryo through to the elderly stage. I think one important last thing to say is that um, after Genesis 1 and 2, we've got Genesis 3. We see Satan sidling up to Adam and Eve and telling a very, the more I read it, the more I, I, I pick up just how winsome and plausible his counter story is. Um, and, and he whispers to them about an opposing kingdom. He says, don't worry about God. Do what's right for you. Be your own God. Um, 
And from the moment that Adam and Eve accept that and turn against God's rule, human dignity gets thrown totally out of whack. So we've got on the one hand people trying to be gods and devaluing those they want to use or who threaten them or who get in their way. It starts right at the beginning. Genesis 4, Abel annoys Cain. Cain gets rid of Abel. (laughs) Herod in Matthew chapter 2, the threat of a rival king sends him killing every baby boy in the kingdom. Um, There's a book I I had a skim through recently called um, Less Than Human, Why Human Beings Demean, Enslave and Exterminate Others by David Livingston Smith. It's a holiday reading. (laughs) um, But what he does is he looks across multiple oppressive regimes and then he sees there's this consistent theme that those in power will dehumanise their opponents Um, so they can sit comfortably with how they treat them. So I think we've got to be honest here and I think we've got to say that what's happening when we say a fetus is is a human being but not a person worthy of protection, um, then what we're doing is taking a godlike position to devalue a person in his life or, or her life. So what does the Bible say? The Bible says we're not many gods. We have all have God-given dignity. We're all equally precious at every stage of life. Uh, And and also God has made us to be interdependent. We're not lone islands. We're we're utterly dependent on him, but we're also dependent on on, on each other. And I think when we look at real life, that makes sense. This idea that we're sort of lone choice makers and we can determine our own lives, it's just not true. We're constantly impacting on one another. We're all constrained by our context. Um, And those connections can be beautifully enabling, but they can also be enormously oppressive with this God-defined dynamic at work. So I think it's really important to see, despite all this talk of choice and freedom, women with unplanned pregnancies can very often feel that their choice is very constrained. There is a very strong pressure and expectation on them to abort. So um, there's a famous feminist, very controversial feminist, called Germaine Greer. And this is what she says about the legalisation of abortion. She says, what women won was the right to undergo invasive procedures in order to terminate unwanted pregnancies, unwanted not just by them, but by their parents, their sexual partners, the governments who won't support mothers, the employers who won't employ mothers, the landlords who won't accept tenants with children, the schools that won't accept students with with children. And I, students I, with disabilities, were you going to say? Well, students oh, with students children. With, sorry, yeah, yes. Yeah, or with, maybe, yeah, with disabilities yeah. too. Um, I think the reality is that women and men can feel swept into abortion without being offered alternatives or help for the situation they're in or, or realising what they're in for. You know, too often... Um, they find out that abortion doesn't provide a quick fix um, and that they they have the weight of that decision on them for the rest of their lives. Well, I think the world wants to say, you know, unwanted pregnancy, solution, abortion, Mm. but Mm. yet you're always going to have been Mm. pregnant. Absolutely. You can't undo that. And so there are implications, aren't there? Mm. Absolutely. And I think um, there's one writer called Melinda Tankard-Reist, He's written a lot about the experience of abortion grief and also about the experience of abortion itself. That particularly, say, if you take a woman who's, um, and I've seen this quite a few times, a woman whose baby's diagnosed with severe abnormalities, all too often 
they're told, there's, there's women and, and their families, their husbands and their families, they're told that, look, what, what needs to be done is an abortion and it's organised and there's no counselling and there's no time or space to air concerns and there's no help offered to be able to keep that baby and look after that baby. It's, it's just not talked about. And all of a sudden they're holding a tiny little baby and they often, I think, don't realise that they are actually going to be holding their baby and bearing the weight of, um, of having made that decision and gone through that procedure is, is absolutely enormous and devastating. So abortion isn't just a matter of a woman's choice. A, a, a decision to abort is driven by a whole web of relationships and structures that, that fail to love um, so often the mother, also the father, um, but, but also always that, that baby in the name of adult needs. How common is abortion in Australia? I feel like it's about 100,000 a year. Is that right? Or? Abortion statistics are quite a fraught business, yeah. but I think we can certainly say that it's extremely common. It's somewhere probably between about 70,000 to 100,000 abortions a year. So that actually means that about one in three to one in four women in Australia will have an abortion. So I think this is why this is such an important issue for us to be talking about as Christians because there are there are women and men and grandparents and friends and health professionals in churches who've experienced abortion up close and are considering it now. Mm. As you said before, Christians have abortions. Mm. Yeah. And that actually that something that struck me is that those statistics don't include um, abortions we don't necessarily think about. So there are some contraceptive agents that work by causing an abortion. Mm. Um, in the process of IVF, um, sometimes extra embryos are created and sometimes the decision's made to discard them. Now, if we, we, we really think about that, that's an intentional ending of an early human life. That's stopping of a pregnancy. So what difference does the gospel make as we grapple with this issue? What the gospel does is it transforms our hearts and it transforms our relationships. So I, the gospel starts with our hearts. I think we've got to say, whether we've had anything directly to do with abortion or not, we have to admit that, that every one of us are guilty of wanting to rule and wanting to be worshipped and, and, and failing to love those who stand in our way and then, and then justifying ourselves. And that, that's us. And the gospel tells us that we deserve God's condemnation, that we stand helpless before God's judgment throne. But the gospel tells us that God has seen us. He's seen our sin. He's seen our helplessness. And he sent his son to come to our rescue. We, we have full and free forgiveness in Jesus' death on the cross. And we have new life in his resurrection. So what do we do? I think... We learn to trust him. We, learn, we, we help each other vacate our thrones, especially when life goes wrong, and trust that Jesus is our saviour, who really is worthy to rule. We, we trust that he works, he works kindly in every life derailment and in every dire situation we encounter, every situation we don't choose, every relationship we don't choose. And we can trust his choices for us. Uh, there's a, a lovely book, um, 
quite well. I don't know if lovely's the right word. It's quite a striking another book. Another light reading. Yeah, for the another bit of light reading uh, called Victims and Victors, speaking out about their pregnancies, abortions, and children re um, resulting from sexual assault. Mm -hmm. There's one story in there a woman called Kathleen who was sexually assaulted um, and became pregnant. She considered an abortion, but then decided to keep the baby. And this is what she said many, many years later. I'm not sorry, nor ever will be, that I kept and raised my son. The life I tried to snuff out was the very tool that was used to bring me to a place where I could forgive those involved in what had happened to me. God truly did work it out. So I read that and think, wow, the gospel brings us before a God who actively, sacrificially loves us. I think too, we, we see in the gospel, we see that Jesus cares for the helpless and for the vulnerable. And so with the Spirit's help, that's what we need to do. We need to love and, and protect the vulnerable too. So when we stand over an embryo or fetus, when we look down a microscope and try and work out what boxes need to be ticked to declare this, this group of cells a person, I think we're being a little like a lawyer in Luke 10. I, I read an ethicist who pointed this out and I thought this was a really helpful observation. We're, we're a little like the lawyer in Luke 10 who's questioning Jesus about, well, who is my neighbour? I know I, I have to love my neighbour, but who do I assess my neighbour to be? And there's this real sense that he wants to draw some limits. He wants to keep his love obligations manageable. But Jesus goes on to tell the story of the Good Samaritan. And we see there that that God's love doesn't stop and ask, is this someone worthy of my love? Worth isn't something that you can analyse. We are to be people as God's beloved children who encounter a stranger with a commitment in advance to, to loving her or him, to welcoming him as a fellow God-purposed person. Um, but that lawyer needed to know the grace of God to him first to become a, a generous lover. It can feel a bit overwhelming to try to love that largely in this context, mm. to, to have that standard that everyone should be loving every, every embryo that is created mm. to mm. that degree. Mm. So how do you think churches can be involved in this? Mm. Great question. I think, absolutely. I think it does feel overwhelming. But I think there are a lot of things we can do. I think, first of all, we can pray. Um, I was talking to an older couple recently who felt really convicted about the need to pray about abortion, saying, how can we pray? I thought, oh, fantastic question. I, th I don't think there's any special secret to how we can pray. I think we pray as we pray for everything. I think we praise our God who brings justice and mercy. And we've seen that in Jesus. He will do that in the last day. We can praise our God who makes life and who hears the cries of the vulnerable. We can lament in prayer the horrendous destruction of lives here because we know that God hates it. We can confess our own desire to rule and our own indifference and our own self-righteousness. We can ask him to help us through his powerful spirit to repent. We can ask him to help us change our hearts to become more like Jesus to become welcomers of strangers. We can, we can ask him to bring gospel comfort and conviction to, to vulnerable mothers and fathers and health professionals and policymakers. I think it's good to pray specifically 
to pray for opportunities to show gospel love to vulnerable families in our churches. You can even find out your local abortion clinic or hospital that does abortions and pray specifically for those patients and those staff. And pray for our Christian brothers and sisters who work in government and in health and are part of decision making. So we can pray and that's the number one thing we can do. Secondly, we can make sure that we're talking about abortion out loud. It's not just um, it's not just quiet conversations. It's not just assumed that we all know about it, but we're actually talking about it together at church. That we're clear that abortion is sinful, but we're also speaking about gospel hope for vulnerable sinners. Um, we can talk together how we we can turn a conversation about abortion to the to the gospel. There are lots of different ways that we can do that, but maybe talking about the fact that freedom isn't found in doing life our way, but real true freedom is found in, in trusting the God who loves us and who, who saves vulnerable, sinful people in Jesus. We can share our stories of God's faithfulness to us when life has gone wrong. We can help each other set up a gospel culture of trusting God when, when everything turns upside down. I think that, that one that you just mentioned, I think mm. that taps into stripping that rug out that if I haven't had an abortion, I'm better than you if you have had mm. an abortion. Absolutely. Because it's just exactly what you're saying. Mm. We're all sinners. Mm. We're all trying to do the same thing, rule our lives, have our freedom. And so when we share our struggles with that, yep. it's very humbling, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think one dynamic we need to think carefully about in churches is... What does it feel like to be a woman who's uh, maybe not married um, and has had sex and found out she's pregnant and is part of a church? What does it feel like to be in that situation? There's an enormous fear of judgment and rejection by by our churches and by our families. And our church should actually be the very opposite because... We're all fallen, aren't we? Absolutely. Our churches should be hospitals yes. for sinners. So how can we in our church make it really obvious mm. that we want to we speak of, of gospel forgiveness and hope in that situation, that we want to help? Mm. Uh, yeah, I think churches can think hard about how we, how we can be people who step in and say, how can I help you keep your baby? Let's treasure this little baby and I'll be, I'll be in this with you. So, um, yeah, we can be talking openly about that situation at church and, and encouraging people to come and, and seek, and to, to, to not just sit quietly with their fear, but to come and seek help. I've heard some churches actually have a person who's been appointed as a pregnancy help person to make it really clear that there's someone to go to and who to go to. That's interesting because I think most churches that I'm thinking of, that I've been a part of, you wouldn't know until the abortion has happened. Yeah. As in, Mm. there is no space for that conversation Mm. that I am in a crisis pregnancy Mm. within church, Mm. but there should be. Mm. And because often women who have an unplanned or complicated pregnancy, the only people they know to talk to in that instance is, is the health professionals around them who you know, sadly in a lot of cases be pointing them towards an abortion or maybe just they hear their culture speaking to them and that's the only way out. But if we can make it really clear that no, come and talk, there is another, there is another way and we will help you, I think is immensely helpful. I think you're right. We can go and um, 
two groups who are specifically set up to help women with unplanned pregnancies for advice and for training. So in Brisbane, we've got the Priceless Life Centre. I know you've done some training with them, haven't you? Mm. Um, there's, there's Sarah's Place in Sydney. There's Open Doors. They're great resources for giving ideas as to um, the, the needs of women in those situations and how we can help. We can do really practical things to help a woman keep her baby. We can collect baby equipment and have accommodation on standby. We, we can help out with employment or study or healthcare. We can just be friends who will sit there and cry and, and, and make dinner and, and, you know, and, and rejoice in this little life. We can make it, I think more broadly, we can make it really obvious that we welcome single mothers and fathers to our churches, that, that the baby of a single mother has just as good a baby shower as the baby of a married mother. Um, we can welcome families with lots of kids when a family falls pregnant with number six. We can be the odd ones out who actually say, that's great news. How can I help you? We can embrace kids with disabilities. All sorts of things that we can do on a, on a broad level, I think, to communicate God's love for the vulnerable. Hmm. Thanks, Robin. Uh, now, I remember after I've been a Christian for a number of years that I reached a bit of a care factor overload. There just seemed to be so many issues that I should get even more involved than you're talking generally as part of a church. I should, mm. should be writing to politicians about refugees and abortion and euthanasia and elder abuse. And mm, there just mm. seemed to be so many issues. And I did feel a bit overloaded. Mm. But if people did decide that they had the time and space to do mm. even mm. more, are there things that you think individuals can get more involved in or do you think this is where it's at? It's at that church level. Yeah, good question. I think um, I think first of all, just to step back a bit, there are a couple of errors that we need to avoid um, as Christians when it comes to talking about abortion in our community. One mistake we can make is to focus on political decision-making as the key way to address abortion and forgetting that that it is a much deeper issue that needs to be addressed at a heart level through the gospel. So we've got to remember that our key business as Christians is to preach the gospel and to daily vacate our thrones. Um, the other mistake we can make is to think that because the gospel is our core business, that there isn't really a need to be speaking about abortion in the public square. To that, I would say, yes, change very much starts in our hearts. What, what we need is the gospel. What we need to be speaking is the gospel. But we also need to remember that the whole world does belong to God and he cares about the decisions of governments and health providers and he cares um, about justice and, and about the protection of the weak. So that is something that we should care about too. We need to be really careful about the way that we represent Christ and and speak into government or media or into policy making organisations. There's, there's generally not a straight line from the Bible to any particular policy or, or party alignment. But on the issue of abortion, I think the line is pretty clear. Um, killing, killing the vulnerable is wrong. That's not something that should be supported by government as a good thing. So. There are an enormous number of issues that we can care about and we could spend, we could make it our full-time job 
to be to be speaking to the public square on this. But I think that there are some simple things that we can do. We can encourage those who do um, speak into the public square from a Christian point of view, and we can pray for them. We can. Um, I think this is um, a great opportunity to encourage. Christians um, in our churches who work in government or who work in the health system and, and help them to be to be faithful and to be to be gospel focused. Um, we can we can do um, we can write a letter to MPs. We on the GIST website we've actually got a suggested letter um, that you can write. I know Priceless Life have a centre have a similar thing, so you don't need to reinvent the wheel. You can take what a letter that somebody else has drafted and make it your own. Mm. Uh, well, and Right to Life Australia and uh, Cherish Life, which is the Queensland yes. Right to Life, they've also got all of that Brilliant. support and letters. And so that's that's actually not hard to do, and they also give you the information as to who to write to and how to do it. Yeah. Um, earlier this week, actually, I. I um, went with my minister to talk to our local MP about religious freedom. I was so nervous. But, um, look, it was actually quite enjoyable. We sat there for half an hour and chatted away. It, it was it was really interesting and really good to interact over that issue. And I think that's something we can do. Um, um, it, it can feel really scary to speak into the public square, but, but to actually sit down with your local MP and talk about it, I found was a really confidence-building exercise. Um, I think that that speaking out on abortion can be quite scary because we will encounter opposition. And for some people to say that I'm, a, I'm against abortion or um, uh, that I, I'm against the legalisation of abortion, that can sound like um, I'm hateful or I don't support the rights of women. So it is a risky thing to do, but a, but a couple of things. First of all, God is in control and um, he can turn any number of difficult, scary situations into a, into a lovely gospel opportunity. Also, the gospel, we need to remember the gospel needs to shape our tone as we speak. So we need to say clearly that the abortion is wrong, but also to say that um, in a way that shows God's mercy and God's compassion to to women and to men and to families and to babies. So, yes, I think, yep, let's speak into the public square and take even just the simplest opportunities to do that. But as we're doing it, always be pointing to the gospel and seeing this as an opportunity to be showing gospel-driven love. And if people did want to learn more about this issue... Um, you've mentioned a couple of resources along the way, the couple of books. Are there any other resources that you can point people towards? Yeah, you can you can watch our GIST website, www.gist.org.au. Um, I'd really recommend a couple of Megan Best's books. Um, she's written a book called A Life Already Started. It's a very practical, accessible little book um, about helping women with unplanned pregnancy. Really good advice for churches in it, actually. Um, she's also written Fearfully and Wonderfully Made, which is a, a, a great comprehensive look at, at, all, at beginning of life issues. Um, you can go to the websites of some of those pregnancy help organisations such as Priceless Life. Um, you can go to Melinda Tankard Rice's books on abortion grief. And just thinking more broadly, um, 
there's some great books on on sexuality and on um, thinking about motherhood and fatherhood in the gospel. Uh, Marriage, Sex and the Service of God by Christopher Ashe is really helpful. There's a book by Glyn Harrison called A Better Story, God, Sex and Human Flourishing, which is also really helpful. Robin, thanks so much for sharing all that information today. Really enlightening and interesting and yeah, spurring us on to keep thinking of this issue in light of the gospel. So thank you very much. Thanks, Tori. It's a pleasure to talk about such an important thing. Thank you. No, that's fine. Well, by the way, you just oh, love it. Oh, yeah, oh, podcast oh, gold, Robin Bay. Oh, really? Yep. Oh, I feel like I find it hard to put my thoughts together.